Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Leah, a rabbit with a big old basket. And I'm Will, in a chocolate-induced coma. We're celebrating a four-day weekend because of some religion thing, I think? I thought it was something to do with a chicken. Is that what the eggs are about? Eggs are involved, but I don't think they're involved with the religious story. That is something to do with like a whole rebirth theme, though, which is maybe why the eggs came into it. And the daffodils are... Just around. Okay, I mean, Welsh heritage is pretty daffodil-centric. Anyway, let's talk about some science! We do have a whole raft of science for you. Last episode was a bit of a heavy one, really. It was quite serious. I think it was optimistic. Mm. Yeah, optimistic, but maybe a bit uh, one-note. The note being, save the world with investment and innovation. But It's a good note to have, but maybe not the most diverse in its content. We do have a little bit of variety for you this time round. And we're starting off with climate research and saving the... Okay. We're going to start off with the same note. It's just this one, though. It's like a continuation. It's coming from a different angle, and the angle is that some historians at Princeton University have looked at some of the things that have happened in human history, gone to climate researchers, let's talk. We may have something to add. Because you'd hope that the historians at Princeton University would be able to look at some history and draw some conclusions, kind of their job, and the conclusions they are drawing are, hey, human beings have experienced dramatic shifts in climate before, here's how they dealt with it then, can that inform how we deal with it now? Here are the differences between situations where the human civilizations experiencing climate change did well, did badly, did okay. And sometimes disastrously. There is a broader point to bear in mind here that getting interdisciplinary is a good approach. Generally speaking, if you manage to get a group of people with some different perspectives on the subject and share information between them, they can often come up with things that are useful. For example, the perspectives of the international team, led by John Holden and Lee Mordecai, the Princeton University historians, were comparing how reactions to events such as eruptions in Pompeii, earthquakes affecting Haiti and New Zealand, and the collapse of Mayan civilizations in Caracol, Belize, these are not the kind of perspectives that a climate scientist or atmospheric researcher might be looking at when they're trying to figure out how human populations are dealing with climate change and societal shifts at the moment. But Mordecai, who is now a Byzantine Studies postdoctoral fellow at the University of Notre Dame, says, You find over and over again that disasters serve, in a way, to emphasise the differences in human society. After a hazardous event, Rich people suffer less. You see that all over the place. And this was in reference to the Mayan Caracol collapse, which, rather than being an environmental-driven thing, which was what was previously assumed to be happening, new research that they're reporting, which to me could be its own press release entirely, like probably for a historical I mean, journal. It probably is. Found that it wasn't as so much an environmental shift that led to the Mayan civilization collapsing, as a long-standing economic and social policy that widened the divide between the wealthy and the commoners. Sound familiar? The thing I really like about this press release is there's a line. Over the course of history, some societies have been destroyed by natural disasters like the eruption of Pompeii, while others have learned how to accommodate floods, droughts, eruptions, and other natural hazards. Now, the thing about Pompeii is it's not like 
there was any chance to adapt. You can't learn to live with a pyroclastic flow which has immediately baked you alive and frozen you where you sat. It wasn't one of those rumbling, long-standing problems of, oh, the lava's getting a bit higher. Yeah, like the islands of Hawaii, for example. It's a different sort of volcano. It's much less explosive. You can walk out of the way of the lava flows, whereas Vesuvius went bang in a very dramatic way and sent boiling hot clouds of dust rolling down the hill and over the nearby cities. You can't, you can't adapt. The point is strong, though, that looking at the differences in societies who didn't cope with climate change and the ones who did can inform us of approaches we might want to consider to take care of our own civilizations. Mordecai saying that history adds nuance to our interpretation of past events, and a commenting professor, Monica Green, at Arizona State University, says that the nuance of science adds to the search for tipping points. That we highlighted some of the tipping points that are being driven, like several key indicators which are being used to gauge the current efforts to tackle a shift in climate, like global temperature increases by 1.5 or 2 degrees, or some markers which you can see on the shoreline of how high the water is getting. And by integrating the historical perspective and learning from the past, as is often recommended, and as John Holden, one of the lead authors, says at the end of this paper, there's a danger that we perceive that historians who didn't understand the methodologies and the problems of science could easily misuse the science. And you can see lots of other people misusing science to their own ends across lots of other disciplines and not just history. And we also saw that the same problem works the other way around, that scientists don't really understand how social scientists work and why we ask the questions we ask. So they're often in danger of misusing history and archaeology. So, yeah, you'll get together, get along, and save the world. I think it's going to be a sort of a team effort. And respect your colleagues in different disciplines, approaches, and knowledge. Like, you don't get to be Bruce Banner with seven PhDs and be an expert in everything. That's just bad research practice. That's um, not how having a brain really works. And moving on to something which we might want to get interdisciplinary about. If you happen to be a marine biologist, we might not want to have a conversation about this because it raises some questions. The main question, which is indeed the title of the press release, is why are whales so big? For those of you who have not seen or heard of whales, they're quite big. Like, really, very big. In fact, the biggest animals that there are are whales. And there aren't any that are small. So across the range of big and small, how do you explain the bigness, but also the smallness only getting as small as still quite big to everyone else? I mean, you consider the smallest land mammal, it's, you know, some sort of shrewish thing, and it's like a couple of centimetres long. About the size of a thumbnail, yeah. By contrast with the biggest land mammal, the African elephant, which the internet tells me can reach a height of 3.3 metres. That's an order of, you know, about 100 times the magnitude, whereas the difference in whale sizes from smallest to biggest is only about 10 times, from about 20 metres down to about Two. And this variety in whale size is really emphasised in the first paragraph of this press release, which does read in a very Attenborough sort of voice. Anyone who has witnessed majestic whales or lumbering elephant seals in person would be forgiven for associating ocean life with a limited size in mammals. But 
New research reveals that mammal growth is actually more constrained in water than on land. Previous theory has suggested that pressure on body size in mammals should be more relaxed in water because of the space of the habitat in general, the ability to float rather than having to support your own body weight. But the team working on this at Stanford University have found that mammals who live entirely in the water have more limiting factors to their growth than they thought. And this is based on an analysis of body masses for 3,859 living and 2,999 fossil mammal species from existing data sets. And the analysis includes about 70% of living species and 25% of extinct species. Using a dataset alongside models developed in collaboration with Craig McLean of Louisiana University's Marine Consortium, they found that land animals who take to the water evolve pretty quickly towards a new size, which is then seemingly limited, converging at around 1,000 pounds. They're looking at the three main lineages of aquatic mammals, so the hippo-like hoofed mammals, which are the ancestors of modern whales, the dog-like ancestors of modern seals and the manatees elephant-like ancestors who've all converged to very similar shapes and this quite tight range of sizes. So the ancestors of whales didn't change as much in body size when they took to the water as the ancestors of dogs as they turned into seals. And essentially the limiting factors are at the lower end you have to be big enough to retain your body heat when you're mostly in the water. There's kind of an exception in otters in that direction, but they are more amphibious than fully aquatic for the most part. The most aquatic species are sea otters and giant river otters, which are really big compared to the smallest examples of the group. And at the bigger end, the constraining factor is just being able to eat enough. One of the authors, Jonathan Payne, says, When you're very small, you lose heat into the water so fast, there's no way to eat enough food to keep up. By contrast, the larger end of ocean mammals have to come up with whole new ways of eating to sustain their very big bigness. The exceptions on the biggest end of things being baleen whales, who spend much less energy on feeding than their toothed counterparts because they just filter their food. They can just drift around, gushing through acres and acres of kelp and krill and just being. Which raises one of the questions we'd like to speak to a marine biologist about. If filter-feeding whales can get that big, why aren't filter-feeding sharks? The difference in size between a blue whale and a whale shark is significant. An average of 24 or 25 metres compared to 12 or 13 Admittedly, having a 25-metre basking shark would just put the willies right up me, so I'm fine with there not being one, but... I'm interested to know why that's the case. Like, I'm not a shark expert. Is it that sharks have been filter-feeding for less time? Which seems unlikely, because there have been sharks around almost forever. The study suggests that metabolism increases with size more than an animal's ability to gather food does. and in order to push those size limits to the point that they have, baleen whales have had to adopt that completely different feeding strategy. I have heard that once upon a time the Earth was such an oxygen-rich environment 
that the metabolic demands on its inhabitants were very different, which enabled them to grow very, very large. And maybe they can talk to some historians about this. Yeah, that's why you got two-meter-wide dragonflies. Because you don't need a complicated vertebrate respiratory system if there's just that much oxygen in the air that you can just kind of let it into your tissues. All up through your spiracle. So, between the giant sharks and the giant dragonflies, maybe there's just a pattern here of me being glad that giant animals aren't so much a part of our world as they once were or could be. I'm happy being at the top of the food chain, thanks. I mean, whale sharks and basking sharks are really chill. They don't have teeth, even. Giant dragonflies would be terrifying, but also, if they were here, you'd be used to them. No, I'm pretty sure from birth I would be freaked out by that. <laughs> Born into the world, pointing at the sky in fear. Watching them eat small birds. Yeah, how is... No, 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 no thank you. I think that would be amazing. Have you ever seen a crab eating a bird? Imagine that, but then flying away. I mean, I've seen swallows hunting for insects in the morning, and I've seen dragonflies hunting for insects over the pond in the back garden. And just imagine how cool it would be to watch that, but bigger. Remember when we were talking about the bin-sized crab? And it's going... As its wings flap. Okay, that was adorable, and I love you, but... No, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. No. No. I just love that prehistoric megaphone, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> For more on that, you can listen to our episode of Wikiwalking. That would be episode 30, where we start off and pretty much remain with charismatic megafauna. It's uh, mostly dinosaurs, yeah. You have a type. But enough about giant monsters from the deep, let's move on to some more land-based fables, a little bit of a human story. Robin Hood. Did Robin Hood ever fight dinosaurs? I feel like that might have been a crossover. I'm sure someone has written something where Robin Hood fights dinosaurs, but it's not part of the usual lore surrounding the character. Another missing chapter from the tales of Robin Hood would be his American adventures, because apparently... According to new research from Washington University in St. Louis, they just wouldn't get along. No, the press release doesn't talk about possible reasons for their findings, which are broadly that Americans prefer economic inequality to playing Robin Hood. But since the results are slightly different with German participants, it may just be that if you're very used to there being a huge gulf in between the rich and the poor, you think it's normal, and therefore don't make any efforts to change it. Hey, remember that mine collapse from earlier? Something, something, huge disparities between the very wealthy and the not-so-wealthy. Hmm. So the way that they conducted this study was basically using gift cards, where participants were given a pair of gift cards. Of three gift cards at $25 value, a $50 value, or $75 value, and hey, congratulations, you're a winner. Maybe you've got the most, maybe you've got the least, maybe you've got the middle. And then they were told the values of the gift cards, and given the option to reallocate their wealth from one gift card at twice the value, or one gift card at three times the value of the lowest value gift card. And would they balance things out at $50 a piece? No. Actually, it turns out that people seem reluctant to go about equalising wealth and balancing out, even if it was completely decided by chance and lottery who's getting what. 
other recent research has argued that economic inequality can persist because the people who are worse off might have a skewed perception of the difference in wealth between what they've got and what the people three streets over in the big houses have. But because all of the values people were being presented with in this study were completely transparent, that somewhat eliminates that factor. And it appears that Americans seem to just accept it. In fact, Kenneth Sheeve from Stanford University says, In our experiment, there is no misperception of relative wealth. Individuals know exactly the value of their gift card, how it compares to the other respondent's gift card, and they can fully remove inequality by giving or taking from the other respondent. They just don't. And they do break down some behaviours into certain types of giving and receiving, who is more likely to donate, who is more likely to try and balance things out. And they found that that was typically more common in the German participants, that there would be more of an attempt made to wealth parity. And the results across the two different groups of participants seem to track pretty well with how their nations handle wealth inequality. And the participants' responses in the study also seem to be a fairly strong predictor of their attitudes towards policies for redistributing wealth. And they have a note here, which is just, frankly, what blows my mind the most out of this, is that without tax transfers and other wealth redistribution programs, both nations, America and Germany, would have similar levels of poverty, about 32% in the US and 36% in Germany. However, using various progressive social programs, Germany reduces its poverty rate by 20% compared to a reduction of only 8% for similar programs in the US. Holy hell, America, if you're the wealthiest nation in the world, get it together and, like, share the love. If you have the highest concentration of billionaires, do a whip around, okay? Pass an envelope, take some collections, you all have been to church, right? I would be interested to see how this would turn up in the UK. I'm not very au fait with German politics in general, but I'd imagine we're somewhere in the middle. I feel like in England there's a lot of regional variation between attitudes towards economic policy, because, I mean, compare Bristol to Northamptonshire, say. Compare urban centres to the rural areas. We are a nation of contrast, truly. So in summary, I, I just don't think that people have really learned anything from the Mayan economic collapse. I mean, historians are hoping that we can learn from other collapses and other challenges to a civilization posed by historic factors, but I'm not sure that we're really learning as a species. And on the subject of learning things about learning... It turns out we've just learned that we've been learning about learning completely wrong. If you want the too-long-didn't-read version, which is... Um, kind of what we're here for. Kind of what we're here for, but also important in this case, because trying to wrap my brains around it gave me a headache when we were first going through this. Essentially, what we assumed about neurons doing stuff at their ends is not the case, and it happens, like, way closer to the main body of the neuron. Yeah, there is an illustration for this of a man with giant arms trying to tickle the top of a skyscraper. Although I think that particular part of the illustration is just to uh, give you a sense of scale. Some nerve cells are like over 50 centimetres long. 
in a human body, which is odd. You should see the ones in the giant octopus. I don't want that. Well, by way of illustration of this big creature, instead of all of the learning and, I guess, the tingly sensation at the tips of his fingers being where the learning is happening, as it would be in a neuron, which is what we've thought would have been happening, the dendritic cells being very long, very stretched out, very branching at the ends, more of the sensation is towards the armpit, I guess? But the learning, illustrated here by valves and spanners and such, happens much closer to the central core of the dendritic cell where the nucleus is, where all of the the bits of the cell are, than the very far, 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 far away ends where the connections are made. In 1949, some pioneering work by one Donald Hebb suggested learning in the brain occurs by modifying the strength of synapses, which are essentially the the spaces where neurons connect to one another and can communicate with one another, and that the neuron itself is the computational element and the dendrites, which are the long arms leading out from the body of the neuron to the synapses, are just sort of carrying signals. Transmission. Whereas in this new research... Which has been led by a group of scientists with some fantastic names, and it's a joy to say... Professor Ido Kanter of the Department of Physics at the Gonda Goldschmidt Multidisciplinary Brain Research Centre at Bar Ilan University, working with his team of Shira Sadi, Roni Vardi, Anton Scheinen, Amir Goldenthal, and Herat Zahn, suggesting that this new dendritic learning process has fewer adaptive parameters per neuron in comparison to thousands of tiny sensitive ones at the far reaching distant fingertips, those synaptic spaces that you mentioned earlier. So, yeah, digging in right under the armpits where the connections can be very strong, very centralised, and this kind of upends how we thought learning would happen. You've probably heard before that practice making perfect is where you are reinforcing the connections between brain cells. That's where the learning is, that's the old synaptic model, but the new one says that, no, it's close to the core, that computational centre of the dendritic cell. And Cantor says, does it make sense to measure the quality of air we breathe via tiny distant satellite for by using one of several sensors in close proximity to the nose. It's more efficient for a neuron to estimate its incoming signals close to the computational unit. And with that new model of learning, that could change how we investigate learning in the brain, probably not going to change how we conduct learning as a species, in school systems, in hobbies, in research. Even the researchers themselves are probably going to go about doing their brain research in much the same way, because the learning is the important part. And that's why we're here, to help with the learning and to know new things. You are all very welcome. But when it comes to knowing new things, well, this press release starts off a bit of a slew of things which maybe you already knew, maybe you didn't need to know, but, I mean, there's a lot of silly research out there. We had a whole episode of heavy, heavy Save the World stuff, so let's enjoy this hit parade of You Don't Say, starting with the age-old question asked since time immemorial, do young children learn anything from watching YouTube videos? The answer is no. The press release is terse. I don't feel like I've learned anything very much from this press release, except for, like, small kids like shiny things that make noise and have shapes moving on the screen. You mean that the kid isn't learning anything at the age of 12 or 6 months? I mean, they're learning lots, just not from watching the video. It's just, it's abstract shapes to them and noises. So they're like, 
Oh, this is something for my eyes to do. See also, babies. But yeah, if you click through on the links to this press release, don't expect a lot. It's three paragraphs long. You don't have to write a lot when you've not got a lot to say. Yeah, it seems like they are intending to do more study into this, but oh boy, it winds me up when they're like, here's our findings of something we haven't actually finished yet. It's probably a fault as much with the funding models as with the researchers, but Jesus. Well, when it comes to obvious lessons, which you'd think we'd already have learnt, like babies and shiny objects go together like a, a baby and a shiny object, who would have thought that? Introduction of gun laws to Australia stopped mass shootings. Maybe the Australians. Now, there are people who still argue that tighter gun controls don't stop mass shootings, apart from the very many countries who had a big mass shooting and were like, oh, maybe we should make it harder to get a hold of guns, and then stopped having mass shootings, like, weekly? But some maths has been done to the numbers of mass shootings in Australia, which is None for 22 years. And comparing that to the possibility that that might just be good luck. Oh yeah, maybe we got lucky. For 22 years since the introduction of gun laws that there have been no mass shootings. No, those odds are 1 in 200,000. That's according to the American College of Physicians. This isn't just published in the Journal of Thoughts and Prayers. America. We keep warning you about this climate change and wealth disparity thing, so we'll just chime in on the gun control as well. Look around you. After the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania, in which 35 people died, another 23 were seriously injured, the National Firearms Agreement was enacted in 1996, more than a million firearms were destroyed, and uniform gun registration, repudiation of self-defence as a legitimate reason to hold a firearm licence, mandatory locked storage, a ban on mail-order sales and standardised penalties, and the banning of semi-automatic rifles and pump-action shotguns from civilian ownership were brought into law. And there haven't been mass shootings since. I'd be interested to hear about the change in the suicide rate, because one of my favourite little gun control facts is that... America has a disproportionately high suicide rate compared to other risk factors just because of the easy access to guns. You have about 10 minutes from when you go, right, that's it. I can't see any point in continuing to live. I'm going to kill myself. And the point where your brain pulls itself out of that horrible sludge and is like, oh, I mean, we uh, could have a sandwich probably and see how we feel tomorrow. If you are able to go grab a gun and some bullets in that time, you are very, very likely to die. It's hard to get shooting yourself so wrong that you don't die when you're trying to die. Whereas if you've got to go for a more long-winded approach, you've got plenty of time for your brain to shake the sludge off and go, okay, sleep on it? And for you to maybe call the doctor and go, oh, I want to die, can we do something about that? If any of this is sounding familiar, then we will throw in some links to suicide prevention and support hotlines in our description. Look after yourselves. In another American healthcare shocker, most Americans found to have suboptimal cardiovascular health. Disparities still exist between black communities and white communities, but the gap has narrowed due to worsening health in white people. And you mentioned something when we were reading this 
about Americans walking like 100 yards a day. Yeah, I can't remember the exact numbers, but in our general studies AS level exam, we had an extract from a Bill Bryson book about basically the power of car culture in the US. Because most American cities were laid out entirely with the intention that people were going to drive everywhere, there are not pavements to walk on. Everything is very far apart, and therefore the average American only walks like a hundred yards a day, which, you know, the whole thing with the Fitbit and being like, 10,000 steps! That's a lot more than a hundred yards. Well, let's keep things rolling on the American health side of things, with the revelation that in states where it is legal to buy marijuana, people are more likely to buy marijuana paraphernalia. Which might be because they're more likely to be using marijuana. I think further research is needed to draw that conclusive opinion. That's my hypothesis. Perhaps it has something to do with the millions of Americans who seek and find illicit marijuana online. A shocker from San Diego University. Do the Californians have legalized weed yet? Cannabis in California is legal for both medical and recreational use. Well, the highest shopping searches for buy marijuana online were in Washington, Oregon, Colorado, and Nevada. I'm pretty sure that's all legal. The annual growth rate in searching for these terms increased in all but two states, Alabama and Mississippi, suggesting demand is accelerating across the nation. I mean, yeah, if it's legal, people will buy it. If it's illegal, people will still buy it. Online sales of marijuana are prohibited in the United States, even in states that have legalised or partially legalised the drug. Mostly because not allowing people to buy online means you can make sure they're, like, adults, and therefore are making their own choices, rather than kids who are maybe setting themselves up with big problems for the future. We did cover some episodes ago some of the effects that marijuana use has on a growing brain, and it's not, it's not recommended, really. Well, maybe we should extend those findings with the absolute revelation from New York University that opioid use is prevalent among electronic dance music party-goers. Have you ever been to an electronic dance music party? Not one that was advertised as an electronic dance music party, but I've been to parties where electronic dance music happened and we danced. Let's just call it clubbing, because that is what it is. It's like not necessarily in a nightclub, but it's the same activity. It is known that they are at high risk for use of club drugs, such as ecstasy or MDMA. But they wanted to check if they were using opioids as well, and they are. I think it's a pretty well-known phenomenon that if you're taking a drug, you might well be trying some other drugs. So how can we round up all three of these stories? Where drugs are available... People take drugs. If you've looked at any anthropological anything, as a species, we like getting off our faces. It might be narcotics, it might be alcohol, we like getting out of our heads once in a while. This sounds like the interdisciplinary kind of research I can get behind. Getting blazed with a historian. So, shall we start with getting drunk with Mary Beard? Yeah, Mary Beard has, um said some things about the way she lives her life, which make me suspect she would be really a good time at a party. Okay, so Eureka Nerd Missions for 2018. Number one, save the world. Number two, get crunk with Mary Beard. 
If you can help out with either of these, then reach out to us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. That's eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. Or if you've got Mary Beard on Twitter, we're at eurekanerdcast. If you think that she might just want to hang out with a glass of wine and talk about Wikipedia for a bit, then maybe she would be a good fit for the Wiki Walking podcast at wikiwalking.co.uk. We'd have fun if we were to hang out, I think. Any marine biologists or other historians who want to get interdisciplinary are welcome to attend. But until next time, that's all for me. And all from me. Bye-bye. Are you playing Animal Crossing whilst we're podcasting? Yeah. I can cast pods and collect apples at the same time. <laughs>